This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Well, we have tour buses that go by our house, little tour buses, and they'll stop in front of our house. (laughs) And every once in a while, we'll wave to them and they'll wave back. So the family received a letter at their home. Obviously, it was unmarked. It arrived special delivery demanding $200,000. And under that, there'll be a tin can. And inside the tin can, there will be a note telling you where to go for the next note. One of my daughters and I will walk around the neighborhood and we'll look at these old houses and we'll kind of think about, you know, when this house is built. Brian Horner has always had a thing for local history. The resident of Spokane, Washington, told Creme 2 News it's something his mom shared with him and that he's passing on to his children. And we actually went around our whole neighborhood during COVID and we started marking houses that we'd want to live in. You know, it's like, well, look at that cool old house. That'd be a really cool place. So we have a map someplace where we have little red X's of all these cool houses in the neighborhood. His own home, it turns out, has a pretty surprising history itself. So there was a picture in the Spokesman Review, and here's the picture, but it was from that week where um, the G-men were here, and uh, they were looking for the money, and so they actually dug up part of the backyard looking for the money. It's a dark past Horner's family didn't know about when they moved in. We noticed in this closet, so these are plaster walls, lath and plaster, and so there's strips of wood, thin strips, and then they put plaster of it. Well, a lot of the walls in the closet are loose. It's like the plaster has come loose from the, the lath, as though almost someone had been in here banging on the wall. So just we didn't know this at first. We just found that this is kind of strange, <laughs> that why in the closet is there so much problems with the plaster? Tim Pham, an anchor and reporter with local news station Creme 2 News in Spokane, reached out to the Horners about their home earlier this year. I knocked on their door. They didn't answer. And I was almost positive they were home, but uh, it seemed like they were home, but they weren't. And so I decided to write them a letter. And I wrote them a letter with our news station letterhead and just was really polite and asked them, hey, my name is Tim. I'm a reporter in town and I Not sure if you know, but your home has quite the notorious past. This chapter in the home's history takes us back to the 1930s. May 24th, 1935. It was a Friday, a school day, and nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser decided to walk home from school for lunch. He and his classmates had been released a bit earlier than usual, so when George walked over to the nearby Annie Wright Seminary to meet up with his sister, She wasn't quite ready to join him. School was released early that day, and so George decided to go and meet his sister at their normal spot. But because school was released early, George didn't want to wait for his sister and decided to take a shortcut home. According to FBI records, George cut through some tennis courts. And right as he left the courts, a man who appeared to be around 40 years old, with brown hair and a mustache, stopped him to ask for directions. As George responded, the man grabbed him and carried him to a car parked across the street, where a second man was seated in the passenger seat. They put George in the back, threw a blanket over him, and drove off. 
nine-year-old George Warehouser is walking home from school, and he's snatched right off the street less about three blocks from his house. Brian Johnson is the author of a newly released book about the George Warehouser kidnapping. Deep in the Woods, the 1935 kidnapping of nine-year-old George Warehouser, heir to America's mightiest timber dynasty. A long title. As Johnson told Tim Pham in a recent interview, the 1930s was something of a heyday for criminals looking to kidnap the children of wealthy American families. Back in the 30s, kidnapping was uh, becoming really, really popular um, with the criminal set. And so rich families had to be concerned about something like this. And the warehousers, well, they were a pretty obvious target. The warehouser family owns more timber than you can possibly imagine. Check this out. The Warehouser Corporation family owns approximately 4% of the entire state of Washington. George's great-grandfather is still to this day considered the 12th richest man in American history. Bill Gates being number 11. So yeah, they were uh, ripe for the picking, as, uh, as they might say. George's kidnappers soon made it clear that they were, in fact, after the family's money. And they wanted quite a bit of it. So the family received a letter at their home. Obviously, it was unmarked. It arrived special delivery demanding $200,000. And $200,000 might not sound like a lot right now, but that's actually probably closer to $4 million now. During the Depression, the average income for a person was $1,500 a year. So the kidnappers were asking the equivalent of 133 years of annual salary for the average person. Huge amount of money. Huge amount of money. In fact, when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped two years earlier, the kidnappers initially only asked for $50,000. So this was four times what the Lindbergh baby kidnappers asked for. And on the back of that letter was George's signature on the back of the envelope. And so it was kind of their way of showing that their son is still alive and that this was a serious demand. Along with the ransom demands, the kidnappers sent instructions for how the warehousers were going to be able to communicate with them. And they told the family the family would communicate with the kidnappers using personal ads in the Seattle Post Intelligence or newspaper. And they would use a code name, Percy Minnie. So that when the uh, warehousers were ready to pay the ransom, they would post a personal ad saying, we're ready to pay, signed Percy Minnie. Each day, the kidnappers kept an eye on the personal ads in the paper. Until one day, there was an ad signed by Percy Minnie, indicating that the warehousers were willing to pay the $200,000. All the kidnappers had to do was figure out how exactly they were going to make the exchange without getting caught. Then the kidnappers set up this elaborate plan for the money drop. This plays out like a like a film noir movie. It's just amazing. I couldn't make half the stuff up. So they told they told the warehousers, okay, here's how you're gonna drop the money. Okay? You are gonna go to this location, this house kind of halfway between Seattle and Tacoma, an old abandoned house. And you're going to look for a little stick in the ground with a piece of white fabric attached to it, almost like a little flag. And under that, there'll be a tin can. And inside the tin can, there will be a note telling you where to go for the next note. And so George, uh, George's dad at night drives out to this location, 
finds the abandoned house, finds the um, little flag, finds the tin can, finds a note, says drive 700 yards to the next location, goes to that one, finds another flag, but there's no tin can and there's no note. He's like, oh my God, I have to make the drop tonight or who knows what's gonna happen to my son. As hard as he tried, George's father couldn't find that next note. And so he wasn't able to make the drop that night. The next day, the kidnappers call him and say, hey, what gives? Where, where's our money? He's like, I tried, but there wasn't any note. And they went, okay, we're going to give you one more chance. And so he went through the whole process again. This time, there were the notes that led him to with the final drop location. Leaves the money in the car, walks down the road. Kidnappers jump out of the bushes, jump in the car. Off they go. They get their 200000 bucks. The kidnappers had the money. Now it was time for them to hold up their end of the bargain. They got what they wanted, so they were going to bring George back to Seattle and drop him off. But on the way back, they were like, hmm, where should we drop him off? It really never crossed their mind that they would get, get this far. And so they decided to drop him off out in the, in the forest, basically right close to where they had him buried in the ground. And so they dropped him off. Um, on this old timber road in Issaquah with a blanket and a dollar and said, okay, George, your dad's going to come pick you up. And off they went. But nobody comes because nobody's been informed that George has been released, let alone where he's been released. And so George is standing out there in the rain in pitch dark in the forest. He's nine years old. No one's coming for him. After a couple hours, he goes, okay, this is stupid. I've had enough. So he starts walking. He walks for miles. And he comes to this farmer's house and knocks on the door at like six in the morning. Farmer answers the door. And there's this little kid standing on the front porch all wet. He says, hi, I'm George Warehouser. Can you take me to my parents' house? The kid who's been on the front page of every newspaper in America just magically appears on the front porch of this farmer's house out in Issaquah. The farmer took George back to Seattle, where after eight days, the nine-year-old was finally reunited with his family. Family goes crazy. The press goes crazy. Just to give you a sense of how big of a story this was, the Warehouser home in, in, uh, in Tacoma became pretty much the biggest tourist attraction in the state of Washington. There would be cars lined up down the street to slowly drive by the house to see the warehouser house. And people would run up and they would steal flowers out of their yard as souvenirs. And there were reporters just camped out, camped out in their yard for the entire week. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And then there was police and FBI agents staked out all the time here. This was at the time, probably the biggest, greatest crime in Washington state history. And even today, it's got to be in the top five, you know, honestly. And if it's not one of the greatest, it's easily the most fascinating. But the story doesn't end there. George's kidnappers were still on the loose. So after the kidnappers drop off George, George gets home, then becomes, as the New York Times called it, the greatest manhunt in Northwest history. As it turns out, the warehousers had been working in concert with authorities throughout the whole ordeal. So the authorities are in the know. And at some point, the FBI decides to 
assist the Weyerhaeuser family and record every serial number of the ransom money. So $200,000 worth of money, they recorded each serial number and work with the family so they can pay the ransom to then get George. When the ransom money is turned over to the kidnappers, they, of course, they start spending it in different parts of the country. The bills start showing up and the FBI turned in those serial numbers to different merchants across the area to let them know that there are bills out there that were a part of this ransom. And the FBI received hundreds, if not thousands of tips when the kidnappers were on the loose and they received uh, messages and uh, whatnot from merchants saying, hey, I have one of the bills. And so once they started seeing that a lot of the bills were popping up in Salt Lake, the FBI sends undercover agents to Salt Lake at various stores and pharmacies to hopefully catch the kidnappers in the act while spending some of the money. On June 8th, 1935, a cashier at a Woolworth store informed one of the detectives that a woman had paid with one of the unmarked bills. That woman, Margaret Whaley, was taken to the FBI's local field office in Salt Lake City, where agents found another ransom bill in her pocketbook. After some back and forth, she gave the agents her home address, where her husband, Harmon Metz Whaley, was arrested later that same day. According to the FBI, Harmon Whaley then made several false statements before confessing that he and a man named William Daynard kidnapped George Weyerhaeuser. He also told them his wife Margaret didn't know about the plan at first, but later helped them negotiate the ransom. By this point, William Daynard, the third kidnapper, had slipped away and gotten out of Utah. He had made a break for it to Butte, Montana. And he's standing on a street corner in Butte, Montana, the day after the other kidnappers are captured. And he's standing there and he looks across the street and there's a cop and the cop is staring at him. And he's staring at the cop, the cop's staring at him and the cop's like looking at him really peculiarly. (laughs) And so the kidnapper goes, oh crap, he knows that I'm the kidnapper and he makes a break for it. Well, the cop didn't recognize him as the kidnapper because he didn't know he was the kidnapper. He recognized him because he'd arrested him three years earlier and just happened to recognize him on the street. The guy runs away, the the cop chases after him, and the cop would have caught him, except the kidnapper jumped into a yard and there was a guard dog, and the cop had to make a choice, shoot the dog and capture the guy, or not shoot the dog. He decided not to shoot him, and as a result, the kidnapper got away for another year. In 1936, bills with altered serial numbers started to show up in the western United States. When the FBI lab examined the altered bills, they found the true serial numbers were a match for the ransom bills. And banks were told to look out for anyone coming in with altered currency. That approach paid off in May of 1936, when reports of altered bills finally led authorities to arrest William Daynard, also known as William Mann in Los Angeles. Two of the kidnappers, they go to trial. Harmon Whaley, who was uh, he and his wife, Margaret. Harmon gets 45 years at Alcatraz. Margaret, she got 20 years in a Michigan work farm. And then uh, they finally captured the, the mastermind, uh, Bill Mahan. Um, and he got 60 years 
in Alcatraz. As for the $200,000, investigators were able to track down most of it. So the FBI, they were able to recover about 160000 of the $200,000. The kidnappers spent some of the money, but then they also burned some of the money once they knew that they were being tracked. So $40,000 is unaccounted for, but the FBI, they did get $160,000 back. And between the three prosecutions, as well as conversations with George himself, they were able to fill in a lot of blanks, starting with why exactly the kidnappers decided to target George in the first place. Margaret's sitting around the house and she's reading the spokesman review. And she sees an article about George's grandfather, who had just recently died. And she just read the article out loud. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, Rich guy, warehouser, just recently died. She says this out loud to her husband and, um, and Bill Mahan. She didn't really think anything of it. Bill Mahan, the wheels start turning. He's like, huh, rich family, person dies. Now, maybe the son of the person died gets inheritance. Maybe they've got kids. Hmm. So he sees the angle. So this whole kidnapping was all spurred by that little article, this obituary, in the spokesman in the spokesman newspaper. Investigators also learned where the kidnappers took George, what happened during the eight days he was in captivity. FBI records say after George was snatched off the street and placed under a blanket in the backseat of the kidnapper's vehicle, he was driven around for over an hour before the car stopped by the side of the road. The abductors removed the blanket and handed George an envelope telling him to sign his name in pencil on the back. This is the envelope they would later send to George's parents, with the signature serving as proof that George was alive. Then the abductors led George across a stream, and at least a half mile back into a wooded area, where they'd previously dug a hole George estimated to be about four square feet. They put George in the hole and chained his right wrist and leg, then covered the hole with a board and took turns guarding it until that night. Worried that police might find them, they eventually carried George back to the car, placed him in the trunk, and drove around for another hour, at which point the men led George through the woods once again, then dug another hole and placed George inside. This time, they gave him a seat from the car and two blankets, then covered the hole with tar paper. On May 26th, two days after the kidnapping, the two men moved George again, this time accompanied by Margaret, bringing George to Idaho and handcuffing him to a tree. And from there, he was finally brought to a home in Spokane, Washington. And that's where they kept George locked up for five days, kept him locked in a closet there in Spokane. And what was also interesting was the house that they rented. They rented it from uh, a local pastor. So the pastor comes to the house to talk with them. And, you know, she's like, I want you to make sure you water my lawn. You keep it green. And they're like, yes, ma'am, of course, ma'am. Little does she know that 25 feet away, Nine-year-old George Warehouser is locked up in the closet. This is the house where Brian Horner now lives with his family. Well, we have tour buses that go by our house, little tour buses, and they'll stop in front of our house. <laughs> and every once in a while, we'll wave to them and they'll wave back. Um, but at first, we weren't sure why or what was going on with these kind of these little buses. And they just stop and everybody's like looking at our house and we're kind of looking out the window. You know, Dad, there's something kind of weird here. This is little bus there, you know, and all these people are like looking at our house. When Tim Pham went out to the home to interview Brian Horner, he saw the closet where George Weyerhaeuser was kept, 
for himself. It was just so eerie seeing the closet in person, seeing pictures online before going to the house. I kind of had an idea of what I was walking into, but it was just eerie knowing that this home and this closet has a huge past. And it was, I just felt for George in that moment. I don't have kids, but I have younger siblings. And I just think about a nine-year-old in this closet for five days and how scared he must have been. And it just, it, it kind of broke my heart a little bit. But also knowing that this story did end up okay and that George did end up back with his family, that's kind of what sets this case apart from different kidnappings. You know, some of the kidnappings at the time, the child never made it back home. And so the fact that, you know, George really did endure a really scary situation at nine years old, but he ended up getting back with his family and then ended up being very successful in life. Uh, it is very, it, it does have a great ending. So after George was uh, released and he had the big dog and pony press show on, uh, on their backyard, after he finishes it, he goes back inside the house and he goes up to the second floor where they've got this little tiny deck and he was sitting up there playing with his pet mice. He had little white mice in a cage. And a reporter was standing under the little deck and he could overhear George talking to the mice and he was saying to the mice i'm so sorry that i had to leave you but it couldn't be helped he was apologizing to his mice for his disappearing and being kidnapped while brian johnston was working on his book on this story he contacted george warehouser himself now in his 90s and george agreed to talk with him it was a it was terrible times in the economy and uh it sounded like an easy way to find some substantial money if they, <laughs> if they got me. And he was engaging. He was funny. He, um, he was still pretty sharp. He still remembered an awful lot about it. It uh, didn't occur to me that I was in, uh, in jeopardy. I was left out on the road with a blanket. Figure, what the hell? If they're giving me a blanket, it can't be all bad. And he, uh, he asked me, he goes, Brian, how long is it going to take you to write this book? And I said, well, probably about two years, George. He goes, Brian, I'm almost 94. Write fast. <laughs> I consider it to be a novelty and a dangerous occupation to be involved in. But, you know, it had a wrap-up that was all's well that ends well. What was the most amazing thing about the whole experience was that it didn't seem to have a major negative impact on George. He didn't have nightmares. He didn't have to go to counseling or anything. It, I mean, it, he, he shook it off. And he was back walking home from school, you know, the next day. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redman. Reed, what a story. I mean, there's so many elements of this case that just, you know, it's like, wow, you, you can't believe the homeowner found out about this house that he was living in. And and I got to say the fact that George is still alive at the end. I was, I was so excited to hear that he's alive and was able to talk about this experience. Yeah, this is one of those stories where the more you learn, the, the more there is to learn. There's just so many 
fascinating details and and parts of it don't even sound real. They sound like a movie. And you're right, hearing that insight from George at the end was was really fascinating. And and the fact that he lived to tell the tale, it you know by no means makes this a happy story, but it is such a relief in the end. So uh, again, tell me the name of this book for any of our listeners who would like to learn more. I mean, it sounds like one of those cases that would just be really interesting to to uh, immerse yourself in. Yeah, no doubt. The book, again, is by Brian Johnston, and it's called Deep in the Woods, the 1935 Kidnapping of Nine-Year-Old George Warehouser, Heir to America's Mightiest Timber Dynasty. And I'll also mention, I listened to the entire interview that Johnston did with Tim Pham at Creme 2 News, and uh, he makes clear that that there's so much more in the book. There are just so many surprising bits of information that that uh, didn't quite fit into that interview and didn't fit into this episode. And one that I'll mention that I found particularly entertaining, he was looking through a bunch of old FBI documents and apparently in them, um, there were some suggestions from random people writing to the FBI about how they could catch these kidnappers. And one person suggested sending the ransom money in a suitcase with a false bottom and then having snakes in the false bottom that when the kidnappers opened the suitcase, they would pop out and I, I guess, attack the kidnappers. So just a, a lot of wild information in the book. I really wish they had tried that that out. And maybe, maybe they did, and they're too embarrassed to admit it. You never know. I was struck by the serial numbers and how they just reached out to merchants in the area. I don't know how or if that is done now. I know like sometimes serial numbers are, are, are certainly tracked, right? But maybe it was just a situation where there were a lot fewer merchants to reach out to at the time, or they knew where to reach out if it was in the Seattle area or or what. But it was an interesting-sounding operation that actually worked. Yeah, I don't know a ton about how exactly they they monitored it around the country at the time, but we do know that it, it was able to track these kidnappers to as far away as California, so there was some sort of uh, system where stores could know whether their customers were using these marked bills or not. And it's certainly still a tool that law enforcement uses, and that's why... We hear criminals in movies all the time demanding unmarked bills because they don't want the ransom that they get to be able to be tracked by the police. All right. Well, Reed, thanks for bringing us a story this week. Next week, we should let our listeners know is uh, the Thanksgiving holiday, and we are actually taking uh, Monday off. So we will have one week off from the show, and we'll be back the following week. I'll be covering uh, the case of Kelsey Barrett, well-known case that happened in 2018, and then continued to unfold over uh, the course of a year uh, following that. And I'll be covering that case for uh, for a few weeks also. So uh, for our listeners who are looking for an episode next week, we will be taking the week off. And we'll miss you, of course, but we'll be back the week after. And of course, we have a daily show that you can check out. It's uh, The Daily Crime, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Check it out. And we'll be back in a, in a few weeks with True Crime Chronicles. True Crime Chronicles.